It's a joy to be back with you once again after a time of physical healing and a couple of months of sabbatical. Lord willing, next week we will return where I left off a few months ago in our exposition of 1 Corinthians. But this morning, I believe the Spirit of God would have me address an issue that several of you have asked me to address. As the evangelical church continues to embrace the culture to make itself more appealing, it now finds itself in a bit of a pickle, in a quandary, if you will, because now the culture is demanding that the church take up its social causes. And we see this under the rubric social justice. On September 4, the Dallas Statement on Social Justice was published. It's an excellent doctrinal treatment of how we should respond to all of this. And since that was published, I've had a number of you ask if I would address this topic as others are doing because it's quite controversial and unfortunately so. So before I ask you to turn to Acts 24, because that's where we're going to end up, trust me, before we do that, let me give you some thoughts to preface where I'd like to go with this this morning. Attacks on the gospel are absolutely relentless. They have been down through redemptive history. And the most dangerous are those that disguise themselves in culturally constructed standards of morality and justice that seem to reflect biblical truth. We see this happening today under the banner of social justice, which many evangelicals believe is an essential element of the gospel. And I strongly disagree. This morning I will explain from Scripture why I believe that that position is a direct attack on the gospel. As we are all aware, at least I hope you're aware, if you look at any of the news, if you know what's going on politically, you see that the scourge of Marxist socialism continues to make inroads into American politics, primarily in the progressive left of the Democratic Party. But worse yet, it has now infiltrated the evangelical church in a profound way. And one of the major Trojan horses that the culture is using is that of social justice. And it's really a very clever term. After all, you know, who could possibly be opposed to social justice? I mean, we all want equal opportunity and equal treatment under the law. But that is not what the social justice warriors want. They demand equality of power, equality of position, equality of property, of prosperity, and even status in the culture. No matter how deviant their behaviors might be. Socialism requires, therefore, a permanent class that see themselves as victims. And therefore, it needs social justice warriors to incite class warfare and to somehow foment ethnic tensions among people. They have to do this, frankly, in order to get elected. And, of course, this plays very well with our sinfulness because, let's face it, As fallen people, we all love to wear the victim's badge, don't we? Oh, yeah, it's never my fault. It's always what somebody else has done to me. All of this, of course, began in the garden. And therefore, by nature, man sees himself as more deprived than depraved. So he loves to hear how he's been victimized. Because of pride and selfishness, when someone mistreats us or disagrees with us, does something that we don't like, it's their fault. We never really want to look at ourselves. That's always our default position, to attack and blame someone else and claim victim status 
And in our postmodern culture, what we find is that the more you have been victimized, whether real or perceived, the more power you have, the more authority you have to demand social justice. The more you are oppressed, the more deserving you are of special treatment. So naturally, in our self-centered, narcissistic culture, people are hyper-vigilant to find ways where they can say, I've been offended. Then you can wear the victim's badge. Women have been abused by men. Homosexuals are being oppressed by homophobic bigots. Um, the so-called transgendered are tyrannized by anyone that doesn't join in their delusion. Certain ethnic groups are discriminated against, and those people are called racists. And you have the poor that are unfairly treated by the rich, and the Muslims marginalized by the uh, Islamophobes. And, of course, you have the illegal immigrants that are being oppressed by the xenophobics, and on it, on it goes. Now, we all will agree that injustice does exist. It has always existed. It will exist until the Lord returns. And we must stand against that. People all over the world are oppressed. They're treated unfairly. We've all been discriminated against. We, we've all experienced some of this. We live in a fallen world where society is ruled by sinful men and women, selfish people. So there is always going to be social injustice until the Lord returns and establishes his glorious kingdom. That's just part of the world we live in. And as Christians, we must oppose anything that violates God's command for us to love our neighbor. We must stand against those things. We must show compassion, the Bible says, for the poor, for the disenfranchised. We must care for the fatherless and the widow and so on and so forth. But the agenda of the progressive left today in our culture is to create a permanent class of victims, people that feel they've been victimized, and therefore anyone who thinks they are being, uh, or they're offended by anyone else, has the right to wear the victim's badge. And the social justice warriors, of course, use political correctness as their primary tool to not only silence opposing views through intimidation, but also demand that anyone, including evangelicals, join with them in their social causes, to join with them and accept their ideologies and even their deviant sexual behaviors. And if you don't, you risk social alienation or worse yet, legal action. And that's where it's going. Practically, this means that the church must take up the causes of the culture. We must favor some over others in an effort to even the scales of power and privilege, a concept that the Bible says is unjust. And my big concern, friends, is that many evangelicals argue that social justice is fundamental to the gospel. And the danger is at least twofold. The danger in this is, number one, it requires the church to advocate for what is fundamentally Marxist socialism and embrace a cultural definition of justice that is always changing and has nothing to do with the justice of God. And if you refuse to do that, you're a bigot or you're a racist or you're a homophobe that engages in hate speech and so forth. This is why, by the way, you see the social justice warriors um, uh, picketing and protesting around churches that, for example, would preach against homosexuality. But there is an even greater danger here. A greater danger when you make social justice fundamental to the gospel. What happens, dear friends, is at that point you add something foreign to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like adding alcohol to a blood transfusion. It doesn't belong there. In fact, Paul said in Galatians 1 and verse 8 that anyone who preaches to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
And my fear is that many evangelicals today are naive about this, this danger, this Trojan horse that is entering into the church through the culture. Let, let's look beyond the agenda of the social justice warriors for a moment. Think about the culture in general. We live in a postmodern world, a postmodern culture that is ruled by Satan. Scripture makes that very clear. And so, therefore, we live in a culture that does not believe in absolute moral and religious truth. All views must be considered equal. Unless, of course, that view disagrees with my view. We can't have that. And therein lies the rub. We're in big trouble as a church, right? In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, we read that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you can be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So we're in trouble because this means that authentic Christian faith becomes the, the target of the culture. You know, it's fascinating. I, I read these slogans, and, you, and you've probably heard them too. Male privilege, white privilege. And I was reading some feminists. I don't typically do this, by the way, but I read some feminist arg, uh, articles on Christian privilege. It was really fascinating. They're basically arguing that Christians see their religion as the only true religion and that Christians want their religion to dominate the world. And I think, yeah, that's true. And one day it will. But that means that the Christians are privileged and what they believe leads to marginalization and discrimination of non-Christians. Well, the church hears this, and what do they say? Oh, we can't have that. Oh, no, we don't want you to look down on us. So what we need to do is widen the gate of Christianity so that all can feel welcome. Let's make a bigger tent. Let's let everyone in. Let's make our message inclusive to everyone so it's appealing to everyone so we can be more relevant. And, of course, there you have... Evangelical pragmatism. And sadly, the church has already demonstrated its willingness to become like the world in order to win it. So it is only natural that it's going to continue to go down this road by embracing the social justice ideology and expand the message of the gospel to advocate for it. The church must take up the causes of the social justice warriors. Now, again, folks, let me be clear. There are people that are oppressed, that are discriminated against. There, all of this is going on. There, there's a lot of that, and it's wrong. We have to stand against that as Christians. And that's why we are to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? But the gospel addresses something infinitely more serious than social injustices. You must understand that the gospel addresses the justice of a holy God who will pour out his wrath upon sinners who have violated his law, who live in rebellion to his righteous standard. Moreover, we must understand that God does not see man as a helpless victim. He sees man as a rebellious sinner who has violated his law and who stands condemned before his bar of justice. The gospel is about the eternal destiny of men's souls, not about social injustices that are going to continue until he returns. And the danger here is when you embrace social justice you in the church as part of the gospel, you enable sinners in their delusion that somehow they are innocent victims of other people or perhaps even an innocent victim of a sovereign God who allowed all these terrible things to happen so that they remain in their situation. And when you have that kind of warped understanding, you will never see your sin and your need for the Savior because you're too busy looking at everybody else. 
The message of the gospel is not about delivering victims from their oppressors. It's about delivering rebels from the wrath of a holy God. It's about eternal, the eternal glory of Christ. It's not about the temporal blessings of man. When Jesus asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit, what was the purpose? The Holy Spirit came to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Not the equality of power, position, prosperity, property, and status in the culture. That has nothing to do with the gospel. And sadly, dear friends, once the camel's nose of culture was allowed to enter the tent of the church through the seeker-sensitive movement, we begin to see this escalate. And so it should be no surprise to anyone that the camel is continuing to force his way into the church. And I will tell you that once he's fully inside, he will trample on the gospel, he will defecate on all that is sacred, and he will urinate on everything that brings glory to Christ. So folks, please hear me. What sinful man needs to hear is not how he can be delivered from the social injustice of man, but how he can be delivered from the holy, righteous justice of God. It's a huge difference. Don't be deceived. Like Paul, I would say to believers that somehow are adopting this, who has bewitched you? You cannot be serious. We're going to take up causes that God considers to be blasphemous? Now, to help us see this from God's perspective, because his perspective is the only one that matters, not mine, not yours. Let's examine the gospel message of the Apostle Paul, the greatest evangelist, the greatest preacher, greatest theologian that ever lived. And now you can take your Bible, open it up to Acts 23, I'll give you a brief survey here. I want you to get the context because we're going to look at something in, in chapter 24 in a moment. Let me give you the background. It's really a fascinating story. The chief priests and elders of Israel, quote, made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Boy, now that's quite an oath, right? I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to eat or drink until this guy's dead. So they're serious about getting rid of this gospel preacher. So they designed an ambush to kill him. And as you read in Acts 23, the son of Paul's sister, there we learn about Paul having a sister. The son of Paul's sister hears about this, this plot to assassinate uh, Paul, goes to Paul, tells him about it. Paul says, you need to go to the Roman centurion in charge. So he goes to Claudius Lysias was his name. And Claudius Lysias, the centurion, realizes, oh, my goodness, this thing's going to get out of hand. This can turn into a full-scale riot, a rebellion, and, and, and I can be in serious trouble, and they can assassinate my prisoner. I've got to do something. So what we read is that he quickly assembles 500 heavily armed Roman soldiers to escort Paul under the cover of darkness to one of their military posts halfway between Jerusalem, where they're at, and Caesarea, where they need to go. So under the cover of darkness, they go about 35 miles to get Paul out of Jerusalem to protect him. And once out of harm's way, after they'd spend the night, then they could go the rest of the way on into Caesarea so that the governor, Felix, could hear the case. So eventually they make it to Caesarea, and Lysias informed the Roman governor, Felix, about this plot. And also let him know that I can't see that, you know, Paul's a Roman citizen. I don't see that he's done any crime here. So, Felix, you need to hear the case. And Felix agrees to do it. Five days later, here's where the plot thickens, as they say. The cruel, corrupt, pro-Roman high priest by the name of Ananias, who, by the way, the, the Jews hated this guy. He comes down to Caesarea, brings some of his elders with him, and an attorney spokesman by the name of Tertullus. And they're coming to bring charges of sedition against Paul, rebellion, rebellion against Rome. 
So we read that they, they make their case, and, and it's phony, and Paul gives his reply, and Felix now is left in a quandary because he sees that there's no substance to the vague accusations made against Paul. And he knew under Roman law that Paul's not guilty of anything. But he also knew that such a verdict would infuriate the Jews. And that could turn into a rebellion and something that he had to avoid at all cost with Rome. So what does he do? Well, he does what every good politician does, right? He kicks the can down the road. He, well, we need to hear more about this. We need to think it through some more. So he adjourns the proceedings under the pretext of needing further information. And this brings us to our text in Acts 24, beginning in verse 24. Let me read it to you. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. So, notice what we've got here. Paul is under house arrest in the governor's quarters, and this man's name is Marcus Antonius Felix, and he's the procurator, or in other words, the governor of Judea that Rome has, has put there. We know from his background, from history, and even from scriptures, uh, history that he was an evil man that had once been a slave, but because of his brother Pallas, who had connections with the emperor Claudius, being a freedman of Claudius's mother, he was ultimately elevated, with his brother's help, elevated to this position of undeserved power and privilege. And we know that Felix was an unscrupulous, immoral, unjust, greedy man. In fact, the Roman historian Tacitus described his character and career by saying, quote, he exercised the power of, the, of a king with the mind of a slave. Now, despite his lowly beginnings and his fortuitous advancement, we see that this is the man that God places in this situation, at this moment in history. Now, we need to know a little more about Felix and his wife, Drusilla, because this is central to the story. We know that Felix had three successive wives. They were all from royal birth, one being the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. And finally, his third wife, Drusilla, was the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I was the king that killed James, okay? Her great uncle was Herod Antipas. You will remember Herod Antipas was the wicked king that served up the head of John the Baptist on a platter at the request of his stepdaughter who danced for him. Salome, remember that story? And she was acting on behalf of her wicked mother, Herodias. And her great-grandfather... I mean, talk about a bad family tree here. Her great-grandfather was Herod the Great. And he was the one that had all the, ba the male babies killed in Bethlehem to somehow kill the Jewish Messiah that might be his rival. Well, what about Drusilla? Well, we read here that she was a Jewess, Jewish lady. And we know that she was about 20 years old at this particular time in this scenario. We also know that when she was only 16, she was married to the king of Emesa. Emesa was a petty state of Syria at the time. We also know that Felix used a magician to convince her to leave him and be his wife instead. So you can see the, the soap opera that's going on here, right? The Jewish historian Josephus described Drusilla as being a strikingly beautiful woman. And he also described how Felix promised to make her, quote, happy, which was a pun on his name, Felix, 
because Felix in Latin is the word for happy. So this is what's going on here. Now, in this dramatic scenario, the Holy Spirit provides for us a, a clear understanding of the message, in other words, the content of the gospel, but also the proper method of evangelism. And my goal here, dear friends, is not to merely provide biblical evidence to refute this misguided notion that somehow social justice is an essential element of the gospel. My primary goal here is evangelistic. I want to preach to you the gospel. I want you to hear it in all of its clarity and all of its convicting power so that sinners can be converted and so that saints can be encouraged, especially here at Calvary Bible Church. We're going to look at this text under two headings for a few minutes this morning. We're going to see, number one, a fearless proclamation, and secondly, a wasted opportunity. Now, let me take you back to the scene. We've got to be there. The Bible comes alive when you put yourself there. You have a violent and corrupt Jewish religious group that has come to Caesarea, and they are in cahoots with the Roman-appointed governor, and these guys have all taken a vow to kill Paul. And then you have this immoral governor who is as crooked as a barrel of snakes and twice as venomous. And he's aware, by the way, of the way, W-A-Y, Christianity. He has some understanding of all of this. But he sees that Paul's committed no crime, but he's got to appease both the Jews and the Romans. And so he's intrigued with this little rabbi named Paul. This guy that was once a Jew, but now he's part of the way and he follows Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified, buried and supposedly rose again from the dead. Uh, this man that the, the Christians claim is the, the Messiah of Israel, the very son of God. And so being intrigued with all of this, he gathers uh, around him his court including his voluptuous, beautiful bride, Drusilla. And then he summons Paul to come in and to speak to them. So Paul enters this magnificent court. I have been there. I have seen its ruins there in Caesarea by the sea. Someday, if you can go with me to Israel, you will see exactly where Paul stood and where Felix sat. And imagine the scene now. Every eye is on this little guy coming in that they've heard of, this man named Paul. Every ear is attuned to what he is about to say, and every eye is fixed as well on Felix because they know that he is the man that supposedly holds the key to life and to death. Now, what a marvelous opportunity this would have been for Paul to have been the social justice warrior and to present before the governor the grievances of the Christian church. What an opportunity this would have been to talk about how the Jews are being mistreated and the slaves and the unwanted infants that are, being, that, that are left to die in, in, in our society, children that are being enslaved for prostitution. What an opportunity it would have been for him to have said, Felix, I, I'm here to advocate for foreigners that are mistreated within our land and, and the gladiators. Oh, my, the treatment of the gladiators. It's absolutely deplorable. I'm here to address the barbaric cruelty of the Roman military that has a reputation for aggression all around the world. I'm here to address the vast disparity between the rich and the poor. I mean, Felix, there is no middle class here. There is no opportunity for people to have upward mobility. There is no social justice. There is no equal treatment and opportunity under the law. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus' death was the ultimate example of self-sacrifice to somehow raise up the oppressed. He didn't say anything about any of that. Why? Because none of that is part of the gospel. None of those injustices compare, dear friends, to the torment of an eternal hell that awaits all who refuse to be made right with God by repenting of their sins and pleading for undeserved mercy and crying out to Christ as their only hope of salvation. Well, what did he talk about? Well, the scripture is clear. 
he talks about four things. In fact, the King James says that he reasoned with them. The New American says they heard him speak about, but it, it, it could be that, that he reasoned four things. He reasoned with them about his faith in Christ Jesus, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now, under the heading of a fearless proclamation, I want you to listen to what went on there. We know that Paul was called to preach the gospel. And wherever he went, he did that regardless of the audience. 1 Corinthians 2, in chapter, in chapter 2 and verse 1, we read, and, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Folks, the gospel and gospel preaching is a proclamation of divine truth. It is not a conversation about philosophy or morality or ethics to somehow find common ground. The preaching of the gospel is a, is a reasoned discourse. It is not a debate. It is not entertainment. It is not a comedy routine. And he went on in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 2. He says, for I be determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's the content. There's the essence of the gospel. Christ and him crucified, which refers to the pure, complete, unadorned gospel with all of its offense, which includes the whole counsel of God. You see, everything else is a waste of time. Everything else doesn't really matter. In verse 18, he went on to say, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And we all know that's true. You present to the gospel to people that, that have no use for God and have no desire to examine their sin. And Paul says to the natural man, the things of the spirit are foolishness. And he cannot, not he will not, but he cannot understand them. And apart from the regenerating power of the spirit of God, they will never hear it. You preach the gospel to these people, it's, trying to, it's like trying to explain agape love to a dung beetle. I mean, they just don't get it. But he went on to say, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, everything else is the mere wisdom of men, which God has promised to destroy. You see, he did not preach, God has a wonderful plan for your life, Felix, Drusilla, I won't tell you about it. He did not preach, oh, you need to understand the purpose-driven life. Felix, Drusilla, you need to understand how God wants to prosper you and make you successful. And he certainly didn't preach a social justice gospel as though he was there to somehow transform the culture and restore justice. He did not proclaim that Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross was God's way of identifying with the oppressed and the marginalized. You see, folks, you'll never see that anywhere in Scripture, ever. Look at the sermon content of John the Baptist, of Jesus, of, of Peter, of, of Stephen, of Paul, and on and on. You'll not see any of that. And notice also, he did not address Felix and Drusilla as victims of their society. Victims of Roman oppression or Jewish discrimination or religious hate speech that condemned their lifestyle. He didn't say, you know, Drusilla, you dear thing, you're, you're, you're a product of, of poor parenting. I mean, after all, look at your family background. Look, look, at, the, look at those long line of murderers. And my, you know, your, your father didn't, didn't love you and you're really a victim of, of perhaps even some unconscious repression of, of past abuse. He didn't preach about any of that. He didn't say to Felix, you know, Felix, my dear friend, you're, you're a product of, of the abuses of slavery. You poor abused man. Isn't it wonderful that you were delivered out of that? I mean, you had no parents to love you until you were adopted. And so I fear that you are secretly afraid of further abandonment, which, which fuels your desire for wealth. Moreover, dear Felix, you you probably have repressed feelings of, of rejection from your mother, which fuels your desire for women and sexual pleasure. No, he didn't preach any of that. All that's the wisdom of man. No psychobabble, no affirmation of victimhood. He spoke to them about what they didn't want to hear, 
but what they needed to hear. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, and faith in Christ. These things are essential to the gospel. Let me elaborate on them. What's he talking about with righteousness? Well, righteousness is the infinitely holy standard of God that, de that demands our obedience. It's part of his holy nature. We are by nature sinners. All that we do and all that we are is fundamentally offensive to a holy God. And sin is man's innate inability to conform to the moral character and desires of God. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is God's righteous standard. Felix and Drusilla, do you realize that? I'm sure you are aware of the twofold summarization of the law in Judaism. That you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you want to expand it a little bit more, look at the tenfold summarization of the law. And the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. The first three are on how you are to love God perfectly. The fourth on the Sabbath. And the last six are on how you are to love your neighbor. And then if you want even more of an expansion, look to the manifold summarization of the law that's called the words of the covenant in Exodus 24, 7. The, in fact, the entire book of Leviticus details God's standard of righteousness. I want to talk to you about righteousness and how you don't have it and God does, but you need it. All of the law was written down. It was placed in a receptacle on the side of the Ark of the Covenant with the tablets of stone inside. In Deuteronomy 31, verse 16, we read God saying this, Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. Felix and Drusilla, I want to talk to you about God's standard of righteousness, about his law, which is a witness against you. I want you to understand that he made him, referring to Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You need to understand that. You need to understand what he said in Romans 8, beginning in verse 3, that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Felix and Drusilla, you must understand that when you come to faith in Christ, you are made to die in Christ. And when that happens, you are freed from the penalty of the law. It is no longer binding on you. Because now you are hidden in Christ who has perfectly satisfied the just demands of the law. No longer are you in a position of having to save yourself by keeping the law, which was never the purpose of the law anyway. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, Romans 3.20. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Felix and Drusilla, you must understand that the very purpose of our salvation is to enable us to fulfill the righteousness of the law through Christ. Because we could never do it on our own. And when you come to saving faith in Christ, not only does he forgive your sins, but he does something even more incredibly glorious. He imputes to you the righteousness of Christ. He clothes you in the righteousness of Christ, something that is foreign to you. So that way you can enter into the presence of a holy God hidden in his beloved son. So let me tell you about righteousness. But I also must tell you about self-control. Which has the idea of having power over your passions. With all due respect, Felix and Drusilla, you struggle with this. We all do. By the way, here you see that the gospel gets very intimate. Very personal. It exposes how we live our lives in relation to God. It exposes how we are prone to live out our lusts. How before we come to Christ, we are slaves to sin. No matter how religious we are. All you have to do is look at the legacy of sexual deviancy in the Roman Catholic priesthood. And you can see that. Can't you just hear him say, Felix, 
and Drusilla. Please hear me. You know, in God's law, he says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's possessions. But I would submit to you that both of you are the poster children for all of this. You two are notoriously immoral. Felix, you are infamously cruel and corrupt and greedy. You're in desperate need of God's mercy. You think you are free to commit every imaginable crime with impunity? Both of you stand guilty before a holy God. I have been there myself. See, folks, this is how the gospel is to be presented up close and personal. And I fear far too often we treat it as some kind of a theological discussion, some conversation. Folks, I don't know how else I can put this. The gospel is not some doctrinal discussion with a glass of Chardonnay in one hand and a pipe in the other. It's certainly not some philosophical or political conversation on social justice. But rather, with loving forthrightness, we must confront man in his sinfulness, in his immorality, in his ungodliness. This is how the gospel is to be preached. We're not to stroke man's self-esteem. We are to expose his pride. We are not to somehow soothe a man's conscience. We must awaken it. That's what the Spirit of God uses. And I would submit to you that our message is indeed offensive. It is disturbing. It must be in order to bring conviction. Because the gospel must expose those cherished sins of, of, of rebellion that we hide in the secret caverns of our imagination. Those sins that, that, that cause us to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Folks, there is no message in all of the world that is more offensive to the natural mind than the gospel. And unless a man sees his own sin and abandons this foolishness about being a helpless victim, unless he sees the wrath of God abiding upon him, he will never plead for undeserved mercy and turn to Christ. This is how the gospel is to be proclaimed. He reasoned with them about righteousness, self-control, and, and it says the judgment to come. Felix and Drusilla, you must understand your lack of self-control reveals your sin, your inability to conform to God's character. And the verdict is guilty. And the sentence will be eternal separation from a holy God. Judgment is coming. And this, of course, would be reminiscent of Paul's gospel preaching. Remember to the Stoics. And the Epicureans, the philosophers in Athens, he said in Acts 17.30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So indeed, Paul reasoned with them concerning righteousness, self-control, and judgment. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Verse 25, but as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened. The term literally means alarmed. It's the idea of trembling inwardly. I think that King James translates it's trembled. Felix trembled. Folks, don't miss this here. Herein is the power of the gospel. I've seen it so many times. It weakens the mighty and it frightens the powerful. And how ironic, you have a fearless prisoner who becomes the judge. And you have a judge who becomes a trembling prisoner. That's what the gospel does. Paul must have made him feel as though he was standing before the great white throne at that very moment. An old dear Christian friend learned from this. No matter how powerful or antagonistic the audience, never be afraid. Unsheath the sword of the Spirit and let it do its work. Be bold in your proclamation. Be loving, be kind, but be bold. And tell men about their sin. 
But never, ever tell them that they're innocent victims. Tell them that they are more depraved than deprived. That's the issue. And though they may laugh you to scorn, though they may curse you, though they may spit upon you, know this. What you're telling them, they know is absolutely true in their life. We know, according to Scripture, Romans 1.18, for example, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Felix knew he was guilty. He was convicted of it. But his heart was so hard and he was so skilled at silencing his conscience that the alarm of conviction did not lead him to repentance. It is so sad. We have a bold proclamation followed by, number two, a wasted opportunity. He says, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. In other words, I don't like what I'm hearing. Enough is enough. I'll have you come back in from time to time. I'm kind of intrigued with you, and I hope in doing this, you'll eventually offer to pay me a little bit of money. But for now, I want you to go. He would not humble his heart. And sadly, it may be like some of you. He loved his sin more than he feared God, and he missed, it, missed an opportunity. Perhaps the only opportunity he ever had. Verse 26, at the same time, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to sin for him quite often and converse with him. But you know what's sad? There's no indication that he ex ever experienced the same level of conviction. And this is what is so disturbing, dear friend, to know that maybe some of you are in that condition. And I must ask you, have you ever been offended by the gospel? I mean, really offended? If you haven't, you have probably never heard it and you are not a Christian. Oh, you may have heard it with your ears, but not with your heart. You know, when a sinner is truly offended and the Spirit of God is working in their heart, it will lead to repentance. We didn't see it here. He wasted that opportunity. We know, according to Scripture, that now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Obviously, Paul didn't preach social justice. He preached the gospel. I wish to leave you with a little piece of history this morning. Whatever happened to Felix? Well, eventually his cruelty was so severe in handling the Jews that the Roman emperor had to remove him. He was infuriating the Jews, and, and so he was ousted. All of the prestige, all of the power, all of the wealth, gone. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What about Drusilla? According to history, in A.D. 79, Drusilla and her son, they had two children, a son and a daughter. But Drusilla and her son died an excruciating death in Pompeii due to the eruption of the volcano of Vesuvius. And today, as far as we know, Felix and Drusilla are weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth in the torment of an eternal hell. They heard the truth and they rejected it. Oh, dear friend, don't be like them. My great fear is some of you have heard the gospel so many times, you've heard it again today. The good news that God will forgive your sins if you place your faith in Christ. And yet, you don't tremble anymore. You're no longer concerned about your guilt or about judgment. You're just concerned about the Titans winning their game today or whatever else. Dear friend, if that is you, I must tell you, Calvary Bible Church is the most dangerous place on the planet. Because what you were doing, according to the Apostle Paul,
Because of your stubbornness and unrepented heart, Romans 2, verse 4, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Folks, today may be your last warning. I don't know. But what a heartbreak it would be to one day find yourself in hell and remember those times at Calvary Bible Church in Sunday school and at Awana and in student ministries and from the pulpit. You heard over and over and over again the gospel. And you heard people plead with you to come to Christ, but you wouldn't do it. You could even see yourself sitting in your favorite spot. And now you find yourself in the solitary confinement of an eternal hell. I can't think of anything more horrific than that. So I plead with you, don't harden your heart. Place your trust in Christ today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. I pray that by the power of your spirit, you will cause them to germinate like seeds in good soil and produce much fruit. I pray that today will be the day of salvation, perhaps for some young boy, some young girl, perhaps some father or mother or grandparent, Lord, whoever it is, if they're here today without you, I plead with you to cause them to tremble by the power of your regenerating grace that they might humble themselves, themselves and be saved this day. We commit that to you. And for those of us who know and love you, oh, Father, Thank you for your love, for your mercy, and for the hope that we have in Christ. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.